Hello and welcome to Iceland Review. My name is Eric Pomerinke. Many visitors to West Iceland's Snæfellsnes Peninsula may have paused to take in the view at Djúpalónsandur, a popular black sand beach. Besides being the site of Jules Verne's famous adventure story, Journey to the Center of the Earth, this region of Iceland is also home to an open-air memorial, the remnants of a tragic 1948 shipwreck. We are here today in the studio with Iceland Review staff writer Frank Walter Sands to hear the story of this maritime tragedy. Wrecked. Words by Frank Walter Sands. Trapesing over the black and gray wind-blown sands of Dupalone Sunter Beach on the Snæfellsnes Peninsula is an unforgettable experience for Icelanders and tourists alike. Below stark, craggy basalt cliffs, reminiscent of fabled trolls, powerful waves break one after another along the ancient strand, paradoxically both relaxing and breathtaking. The dark sands are littered with sea-worn boulders, brightly colored shells, bits of fresh seaweed, and thousands of iron fragments of various shapes and sizes. Over decades, the metal remnants have oxidized to an entrancing orange hue, such tragic relics among such raw beauty. Collectively, these remains constitute a solemn memorial not just to the sailors who struggled and died in this place some seven decades ago, but also to the countless thousands from Iceland and all over Europe who lost their lives attempting to haul in fish in the most dangerous of circumstances. March 1948. In the black and chill of a stormy night, powerful waves repeatedly lifted and violently dropped a hapless British trawler onto jagged coastal sea rocks. The stricken ship was held by the coastal skerries in a jealous grip of death. Just before midnight, the vessel had stranded on a low rocky outcropping, no more than 100 meters from Dupalone Santer Beach in Tritvik Bay. Seawater deluged the vessel as the terrified crew prepared to abandon ship. Less than 10 minutes after she struck, water in the engine room reached the generator and every last light was suddenly extinguished. The doomed vessel listed to starboard, the iron hull groaning as black waves smashed against it over and over again, seawater sweeping the deck, suddenly carrying away a screaming crewman. While the crew, apart from the captain, had managed to struggle into their life vests, the threat to those washed overboard was less than that of drowning and more about succumbing to hypothermia from the ocean water's icy temperatures. Even if they somehow managed to survive the cold and avoid drowning, the pounding waves would crush them against the jagged rocks in seconds. Every member of the crew realized that this day may well be his last. With the only lifeboat smashed, and no rescue feasible due to the volatile seas, the surviving crew held on for dear life in the dark. They climbed as far from the water as they could in the ship's rigging, exhausted from the exertion of holding on against the ever-breaking waves, the wet and cold numbing them, the unforgiving gale whistling menacingly in their ears. In the murky chaos, their only hope of rescue would come from the shore, 
that is, if the distress signals had been received. The desperate crew had seen some lights and sent up emergency rockets, even lighting two fires on top of the ship. But the storm, the high tide, and the darkness would mean that there would be no chance of rescue until dawn at the earliest. That left the remaining crew of the E-Pine to endure the night, to try to hold on against the odds and somehow ride out the storm. The English steam trawler E-Pine was a 43-meter or 140-foot steel fishing vessel built in 1929, manned by a crew of 19. She sailed from Grimsby on March 1, 1948, for a voyage to the rich Icelandic fishing grounds that the English had been voraciously fishing since at least the 15th century. The Epine's first stop was in Keplavik Bay on Iceland's Reykjanes Peninsula. After spending the night of March 12th in the bay sheltering from a gale, she steamed northeast at nine knots and cast her trawling nets in brisk winds with good visibility. But the fishing was bad. Poor hauls meant less money for the ship owners and maybe no bonuses for the crew. Skipper Alfred Loftus, 48 years old, ordered the radio operator to contact other vessels to find out where the catch might be more favorable. The steam trawler Harwood, located at Othelvik in the north of Iceland's West Fjords, answered enthusiastically. Their hauls were excellent. The skipper of the Epine wasted no time and gave orders to steam northeast and join the Harwood. With a good few hours of straight sailing, the skipper told the first mate to man the bridge while he went to relax and read a book on the couch in his cabin. The mate was to call him in case of deteriorating weather, such as snowstorms, or if any vessel or lights were seen. It was just after 7 p.m. Two hours later, the mate took his leave. The bridge, now manned by two deckhands, were experienced but technically unqualified to navigate on their own. Not long after taking the bridge, the skipper called up to the deckhands, asking what the weather was like. Clear, was the answer. Time passed uneventfully. Around 11.35 p.m., the skipper arrived on the bridge. There were snow showers and visibility had diminished. No one realized that the e-pine was in dangerous proximity to land. By this time, there was a moderate gale with rough seas, and the vessel was pounded heavily, but that was nothing unusual for Icelandic waters in the late winter. At just 10 minutes to midnight, the Epine struck the rocks 100 meters from the shore. The vessel was stuck on the edge of a rocky lagoon with high cliffs and a small beach, the now popular tourist destination of Dupalonsandur. Distress signals were transmitted and received in due course. Due to the extreme weather conditions, it took more than seven hours for the main Icelandic rescue team to reach Dupalonsandur Beach just after 8 a.m., a journey which would normally take at most a few hours. Meanwhile, the wind had increased to force nine, with winds of 75 kilometers per hour, or 45 miles an hour. High waves, dense streaks of foam, rolling seas, 
and spray diminishing visibility. The rescue team could see the desperate remainder of the Epine's crew on the ship's roof and in the rigging, having strapped themselves where possible to avoid being washed away by the increasingly threatening waves. One crew member jumped, or was washed, overboard wearing a life jacket and somehow made it to the beach, more dead than alive. The rescue team dragged the drowned sailor ashore and managed to revive him. After regaining consciousness, the sailor was taken on horseback to the nearest doctor, an hour's ride away. Three times, safety lines were shot at the ship, but they all missed their targets, either due to the high winds or waves reaching high enough to deflect them before they could reach the ship. In all, eight lines were shot out to the trawler, and although two made it, the remaining seven men were too exhausted to get to and fasten the lines. Finally, a third line made it close to the rear mast of the ship. The rope was given some slack, allowing the remaining crewmen to fasten it to the mast. After twelve agonizing hours aboard the stricken trawler, at last there was some hope for the few surviving crewmen of the Epine. When the rescue eventually could begin in earnest, it was already past noon on a Sunday. The tide was low once again, but the waves were no less threatening, and the crewmen had been aboard the doomed ship since before midnight Saturday. Twelve hands were already dead by the time rescue operations began. Clinging to the bridge, skipper Alfred Loftus was heard to shout over the gale force winds, I do not mind what happens to me, so long as the boys are all right. Look after the boys. Undeterred by the harrowing storm and their desperation and exhaustion, two crewmen managed to get into the harness and were drawn successfully to the shore. But before the third crewman could be harnessed to the safety line, a large wave burst over the deck of the ship and carried him away. The last two sailors were brought safely to shore, clothed in little more than their underwear. Once safely ashore, they said that their skipper, who was standing on the roof of the bridge, had been moving towards the safety line when an enormous wave washed over the wreck. Another crewman who left the bridge in an attempt to reach the safety line was also hit by a wave and disappeared. Neither of them were to be seen again. The four rescued crewmen and the sailor who managed to swim to shore were for the most part unharmed and all eventually managed a full recovery. The families of the dead crewmen were offered about $20,000 pounds, each in compensation by the company that owned the Epine. In spite of his tragic death, the skipper Alfred Loftus was found to have been responsible for the horrific stranding, as well as the subsequent loss of 14 lives and the Epine. Nevertheless, he is remembered warmly when in the immediate aftermath of the wreck, all hands came up to the deck wearing their life jackets except for one man. The skipper gave this man his own life jacket. According to the contemporary court documents, it had long been suspected that the area around Dupalone Sonder generates abnormal magnetic disturbances that may have caused the mates of the Epine to misread the ship's all-important compass. But the clearest mistake that Alfred made was to have left the navigation of the Epine to the two inexperienced deckhands. On any other night, his decision might have had no repercussions, 
but in the treacherous waters of the North Atlantic, with Iceland's fickle weather playing its part, it proved fatal. The beach to this day is an open memorial to the fated Epine. Visitors are asked to respect the memory of the Epine and the 14 English sailors by leaving the remnants where they lie. Well, thanks so much for sharing the story today, Frank. Thank you. That was um, actually the first story that I wrote for Iceland Review. I think these things are really interesting because um, Jubilon Sandur is a really popular tourist area now. And, um, you know, it's one of these areas that people just kind of stop by along on the kind of standard tour around Snifelsness. Uh, it's kind of just one of the default stops and you know it's this very beautiful black sand beach uh kind of reminiscent of rainis fiara i suppose um and you know it's one of these areas that a lot of people might not really appreciate though um for what it really is and you know there's also a lot of these um kind of very photogenic shipwrecks along the coast of iceland like these old kind of like abandoned hulks and stuff like that um, but, you know, like you wouldn't really know that this happened there because, I mean, all that's really left of the wreck, like you say, is just this kind of scattered assembly of rust now. Um, and, you know, so for me, it's just always really great to kind of get this glimpse into, you know, like what what actually happened. Uh, and like for a lot of us, like this is actually a place that we've been to uh, if we've uh, visited Snifelsness. So like there is kind of like a real connection there in that way. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of the more picturesque um, spots that you can visit along the west coast of Iceland. And um, I remember the very first time I saw it, I was unaware that, that it was a place of such tragedy. But in recent years, they've put up an information um, sign which explains the history of it somewhat briefly, but then also, again, asks people to respect the fact that it is a... Um, an open memorial. And uh, I was really overcome when I realized what a sad spot it was at the same time being a place of such beauty. It's also worth briefly mentioning that uh, Dublon Sandur and Drittvik uh, nearby were actually really large uh, fishing centers uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and these days, the Snifelsnes Peninsula is you know, very rural, it's not particularly developed, but I mean, this actually was like quite a large community back in the day too. As I understand it, um, what we know in Iceland as Verbuden is um, mm. fishing villages, which were seasonal locations. And um, there are even some remnants of these, uh, the old huts that were made of turf and uh, stone. But one of the more striking things for the visitor to try out is the stones, which are meant to yeah be lifted in order to um, assess a person's physical strength. Yeah. 
And I can tell you I could only lift the second one out of four. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I gave the third one a good go, but uh, refused to budge. But you can see how in the old days there was a lot of uh, malnourishment. So there was um, a very valid question of whether a fisherman was actually physically able to pull in the heavy nets and pull up the heavy fish on the long lines. And um, that was probably a very tense test at the time for the sailors involved. Yeah, I mean, just for context, uh, yeah, so by Dupalon Sandur, there are these kind of four boulders, and they essentially kind of acted as um, wage levels, really. Uh, and working on a fishing vessel was very strenuous work. And I mean, basically, uh, the heaviest stone you could lift would be your pay, uh, with such imaginative names like half as strong and full strong. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only about a quarter as strong. <laughs> um, and so, you know, this is a really tragic story, um, but, you know, it's also not just an isolated event either. It's not just kind of like a, like a personal tragedy for these sailors. It was also kind of taking place against a larger background of fishing and also politics uh, in the mid 20th century. And, you know, one thing that's maybe some people have heard of, but they don't particularly know a lot about uh, this chapter in Iceland's history is actually the Cod Wars. And this has to do with the British exploitation of Icelandic fishing grounds. You know, maybe you can, you know, so maybe the question is just what were these Brits doing here? Why were they so far away from home uh, fishing off the coast of Iceland? Well, as was mentioned in the article, um, the British had been coming over along with the Dutch and Spanish sailors and, and pretty much everybody from mainland Europe um, since the early Middle Ages to fish the rich um, cod and, and other whales and so forth that are um, you know, in great numbers around the coast of Iceland. So typically, um, vessels would come in as late as or as early as February, and they would stay until perhaps May, when the fish are at their most copious um, along the uh, the strands of Iceland, and they would be taking great risk. And there are uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of deaths that have been recorded of sailors from all nations, not least Iceland and Britain. Um, and there is an interesting memorial in the Siemens Museum, uh, not far from where we are located right now, in the harbor area of Reykjavik. And it has, I think, 3,500 names on it mm. of uh, drowned sailors or sailors lost at sea. You know, this is uh, maybe not totally apropos, but... Um you know, I think it's really easy to kind of romanticize the sea uh, today. But, you know, I mean, historically, uh, you know, uh, there's all of these folk tales about the devil. And he lives in the ocean, actually. Like, he doesn't live uh, kind of like in a fiery hell. Or, you know, I mean, even in the old Icelandic sagas, um, the sea is really kind of regarded as an evil place. Uh, it's a place that you don't want to be. Um, Something that's kind of funny uh, to me is um, very often in the old Icelandic sagas, seals are actually a bad omen. They're actually rather kind of like we would imagine black cats. Uh, seeing one is actually bad luck. And, 
you know, I mean, like maybe we look at a seal today and we kind of just see like a cute animal that maybe like reminds us of a dog or something in that way. And I mean, to me, at least there's something kind of intuitively friendly about this animal. But, you know, I mean, like historically, there really was this kind of like, uh, I mean, almost hatred of like everything that kind of came from the sea. I mean, obviously people relied on it for their livelihoods. Um, but, you know, like there is just also so much death uh, in the era before like all the safety and navigation that we have today. And like there really was this sense that like this is a place to be feared. This is a place you don't want to be. I think that's uh, a very, very important point because if you look historically the um, majority of deaths not just of Icelanders but also of British people were due to drowning that is accidental death and um, that was partly because people did not know how to swim Um, and the concept of learning to swim was very foreign to most people it was a it was a rare skill and it was not taught um, or nor widely practiced um, it wasn't really until the 19th century that people started to begin to try to swim. Um, and in the coastal areas of Iceland, you can find in the Reykjanes Peninsula, an area where there's a natural water inlet with geothermal heating. And in the early 20th century, it was an attempt to bring school children there for two-week sessions in order to teach them to um, swim. Uh, in an effort not just for their own edification, but also to s- potentially save their lives. So this was a, uh, a very important thing, and it explains also why geothermal pools um, spread across Iceland uh, as soon as it was um, feasible. Uh, it might also come as a surprise to some uh, that, you know, to this day uh, in primary schools throughout Iceland, uh, swimming is a part of the curriculum, a part of the kind of physical education curriculum. Um, and that's not the case everywhere. Uh, but I mean, obviously it's Iceland's history with the maritime industries, um, that continues to this day. Um, I mean, I, I will admit, uh, as a kid, uh, when I went to Icelandic school for the first time, I was, uh, mildly scandalized that I had to that I had to, that I had to dress down with my classmates and uh, go swimming. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of people share that shame. Uh, I, I would like to also address the, um, the, the reason that we were talking about previously of the British even coming up here. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, as we mentioned, it's because of um, the, the rich fishing grounds, but it's interesting to realize that um, the Cod Wars uh, had a long-term effect on Iceland's economic growth and its present um, prosperity. Uh, in no small part, uh, export income is derived from fish, uh, which is very, very valuable, and ever more so, I can tell you, after coming from the fish store yesterday. Mm. <laughs> uh, the um, trick was that Iceland did not have many ships of its own until 1903. It had no motorized vessels whatsoever, and everything was hauled in by hand on um, very, very unstable wooden boats. The men and women who would um, would be on these boats were wearing very primitive gear, usually made out of seal skin or, or sheep skin, and they were perpetually wet. Mm. They would apparently not even bring food with them. So 
They would go out for 12 you hours. Just, you just eat what you catch. Yeah. Mm. And that was um, uh, all turned around in the 20th century when the first motorized vessels came and Iceland started to be able to catch enough of its fish to create um, a proper export industry. It wasn't until after World War II, however, that the first efforts to um, repel foreigners from what Icelanders, I think, rightly call their own fishing grounds, uh, was attempted and eventually achieved. It took armed conflict with the British. And um, I've actually met a British sailor who uh, was arrested and imprisoned here in Iceland in the early 70s oh. after shooting on um, with a, a machine gun, a, a large machine gun on Icelandic um, Coast Guard vessels. The good part about that story is that he was allowed out for eight hours a day, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he had to show up in the evening and uh, sleep there until he was finally released after six months of serving his time. One of the main ways, uh, however, that the Cod Wars were fought, as I understand it, um, is um, it's actually rather ingenious. Um, the Icelandic fishing vessels uh, would kind of cut across um, the wake of the British fishing vessels. And uh, in, in, instead of like the normal, um, I believe they're called doors that they drag behind them to kind of open their nets, uh, they would essentially uh, drag like an underwater plow uh, that would kind of cut across the British fishing nets and kind of sever their lines. Um, and so there was this whole kind of game of positioning and kind of cat and mouse where you had these Icelandic fishing vessels uh, that were kind of chasing after the British fishing vessels, trying to kind of cut their lines. Um, and then, of course, the British Navy uh, would show up sometimes and escort their fishing vessels. Uh, but, yes, this did also sometimes end up in you know, actual shots fired and armed conflict. Yeah, there is even at the Maritime Museum, uh, also nearby, uh, a picture of what looks like a giant pair of scissors yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was attached to the front of, I think, a Coast Guard ship, which was used to um, sever these nets. But it's important to put in context, these nets would be the equivalent of up to a million dollars in today's yeah. money value. So losing one would not just mean having to turn back empty-handed to the to Britain, but also losing a very valuable piece of their um, equipment. So it was a bitter war, and uh, it was eventually resolved, interestingly, because Iceland threatened to pull out of NATO. Yeah, and America, who was like the largest proponent of Iceland's. Um, membership in NATO said, no, 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 you can't do that. And they made it very clear to the British that Iceland was an important part and had to be respected. And the British eventually backed down, which meant that Iceland was able to eventually claim a 200 mile or almost 300 kilometer perimeter uh, around the shores of Iceland, which guaranteed that no foreigners would be able to reap the benefits of these rich fishing grounds, and that completely enriched uh, the Icelandic economy. And this is also still relevant today, because uh, as we are recording this, uh, there are preparations for the coming uh, Council of Europe uh, summit meeting in Reykjavik. And um, 
so for the past uh, about six months or so, uh, Iceland has had the president presidency of the Council of Europe. And, you know, I mean, it really does uh, kind of speak to uh, this interesting, you know, maybe outsize influence uh, that Iceland has had in uh, its foreign relations, uh, you know, for an island of 300 some thousand souls uh, to like actually really kind of have this bargaining power at the table between the UK and the US. Um, you know, I mean, like, like it's, it's a very interesting dynamic uh, that, you know, Iceland was kind of ultimately able to, you know, uh, through the US, like actually in that sense, win uh, this conflict with the UK. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually, and also when one thinks about the long-term consequences, not just for the Icelandic economy, but within months, uh, countries all over the world claimed similar rights. Yep. And this actually went a long way in terms of preserving the then quickly diminishing stocks of fish worldwide. Uh, because of course, if you have to look after your own property, you're more likely to do it jealously and also effectively. Mm. So although worldwide we have a too few fish, Iceland is, I think, um, legendary in terms of demonstrating to the world that maintaining fish stocks can be done with the um, help of the, the Research Institute of the Fisheries and um, good and fair laws. However, of course, there remains a lot of weaknesses and there's a lot of people who take issue with it still. It might also be worth briefly noting um, something that's been in the news uh, the last week or two uh, lately uh, is whaling. Um, we are so we are going to see the beginning of Iceland's next and potentially last whaling season uh, this year. Uh, there was recently this report released um, on the 2022 whaling season uh, that some advocates and activists had been. Uh, long awaiting uh and um you know i mean essentially it is a an, an inquiry into whether whaling can be practiced while still respecting uh animal welfare and you know i mean essentially holding uh whaling to the same standards that we hold other kind of you know slaughter based uh food practices uh and um so one argument, though, that is often used in favor of whaling in Iceland is the argument, you know, through tradition, uh, we've always done this, this is our way of life. Uh, but something that is actually rather interesting, though, is that that's not completely the case. Uh, whaling, uh, so, so v just like uh, many other forms of fishing, other European powers um, would, fi would fish and whale in Icelandic waters, but it actually wasn't until surprisingly recently that uh, Icelanders actually had their own whaling vessels and actually practice it, uh, you know, about in the last 150 years or so. Uh, but, you know, I mean, of course, given Iceland's long history, it's actually rather a blip uh, in the long, in the long term. Um, yeah. That's, that's really uh, an interesting point, Eric. Uh, it reminds me very much in my very first summer in 1989 in Iceland, by chance, I was working in a fishing uh, place called Northerau in the kitchen, and the Prime Minister of Iceland at the time was celebrating his birthday on the 21st of June, 1989. Mm. And he invited me to some whiskey, and because I played guitar, he asked me to entertain <laughs> him and his, and his friends. And so I played and, and drank, and then after we got to know each other a bit, I asked the Prime Minister, what's up with the whaling? why are you guys doing this? Because 
I was a, a very fresh foreigner. And he said, Frank, for us, the whale is no holy cow, making a reference to the Hindi tradition in India of, of uh, avoiding or, or forbidding uh, any slaughter of cows. And I asked him, I said, is it even necessary? And he said, it's a tradition, but it's important to us. And I think he meant politically important because it is well known that the um, Independence Party is the one that is primarily promoting the fishing or let's say the capture and, and slaughter of whales. Uh, although it's the vast majority of the population is not interested in eating whale meat. Uh, and yeah, it is just worth briefly noting that uh, nearly all whale is exported from yeah. Iceland. It's not actually consumed in the country. Yeah. Although there is a little place down in the harbor right next to us, which uh, still serves it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've, I've, to my shame, I've actually tried it there. But I do not recommend that anybody try it because it's simply promoting, a, I think, a barbarous practice, which we can all do without. And I think it might be kind of interesting to maybe look briefly at the ways in which things have changed since this story. Um, clearly, navigational technology has gotten better. Um, but also the fishing industry, you, you know, I mean, of course, this is much more dangerous uh, than any other job that somebody can have. Uh, and, you know, to this day, uh, fishing remains, I believe, uh, worldwide, just the most dangerous profession, yeah. uh, in, in, in just in terms of mortality. Um, but uh, Icelandic fishing seasons are much safer. Uh, it's, it is actually rather rare uh, to to lose men at sea now. Uh, it does occasionally happen. Um, you know, I mean, maybe you can briefly highlight, you know, like like what's actually kind of changed on the ground. I mean, of course we have better technology, but you know, like, is there better training, better equipment, these things? One, one of the biggest changes that we can see is from the size of the vessels. Uh, mm. They were previously like the E-Pine, which had, as we said, 19 crew. And today they can have as few as six crew but the ship will be five to six times as large. Wow. And that's because of automation. And um, nowadays uh, they can use sonar in order to, and also um, satellite uh, tracking systems to find where the fish are so they can go directly to them and deploy the nets effectively. A huge change is also they um, can process the fish and freeze them on the vessels yeah, themselves. Yeah and then bring them directly to the markets, usually in the United States or Canada or in uh, the European markets of Hamburg and Amsterdam and so forth. Well, there's actually been quite a revolution in freezing technology that some people might not have heard of. Uh, and, and, and historically, frozen fish wasn't really that nice. Uh, and it, this, this has something to do uh, with the way in which uh, like the ice crystals form. And if they form kind of slowly, they kind of get into the actual kind of like grain of the meat and kind of give it that texture Mushy. when yeah, like 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 when you eat something and you kind of know it's been frozen for a long time it give, it gives it that texture but uh with this kind of flash freezing i mean it really freezes basically instantaneously and it kind of completely avoids uh that thing that happens with the other slower method of freezing where it kind of has this kind of slightly off texture and taste um and you know i mean a lot of the best fish at some point was frozen 
I, actually, if, if, if you buy what is what looks like fresh fish in the grocery store, very often it's just thawed. I mean, like it wasn't actually taken off a boat still flipping around. Uh, it, it was instantly frozen. And then, you know, if they have it in the display case, I mean, really what they've done, it's actually just thawed for you. But it has pretty much all fish at some point has been frozen. I think the, um, the importance of that is not to be underrated because the amount of waste that typically exists within yeah. the fish industry is just tremendous. And that means more fish has to be harvested or caught. And that means that there is there are fewer fish in the sea. And we can see worldwide how this has been uh, a very, very powerful economic trend um, over the last couple of decades. And I think it's, in a way, uh, something we can be proud of because it means we're wasting less and we're being a lot more efficient. So finally, something that I am always kind of interested in, uh, especially with these more historical pieces, you know, I'm kind of interested in like, what were your sources? Uh, like, how did you kind of go about actually writing this? Uh, did you come across any interesting memoirs, uh, newspapers uh, from the time or? I'm actually quite um, proud of the fact that I was able to locate online the original court documents oh, wow. that uh, from from Britain when they were prosecuting this case against um, the the skipper, and I didn't expect to find it. But you know, starting with googling and then going into databases, I eventually located it, and it was actually not all that long, about 30, 40 pages. But mm. it was really, really fascinating to see the testimony of the survivors and. Um, also, what the insurance people were saying, the ship owners were saying, and um, that was very, very interesting to learn. But uh, within those documents, you had the testimony of the survivors who were describing the moments of terror, which then I um, put into the article itself. Uh, otherwise, I was uh, able to find um, concurrent news articles, which were uh, also very descriptive and from the point of view of the rescue teams in Iceland and also the uh, the sailors themselves who were interviewed uh, not long after. Mm. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming to the studio today, Frank. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Ice and Review at our website.